Today's episode is sponsored by Credo Mobile, the cell phone company that lets you make the world a little bit better every time you use your phone. Credo donates millions of dollars every year to progressive nonprofits like the ACLU, and they've been Planned Parenthood's largest corporate donor for years. Not to mention, their coverage is dependable, and you can keep your existing number when you switch over. It's a better world for all of us, and a better way to stay connected to it. So what are you waiting for? Go to credomobile.com slash bestofleft, or call them at 800 3182 to switch today. Now, speaking of sponsors of the show, I need your help to keep the sponsors as good and as well-suited to the show as Credo and the others you're going to hear from today. Please take a minute to fill out an anonymous survey at podsurvey.com slash left. That way we get to know you a little bit better, and then sponsors you'll actually be excited to hear from will buy ads on the show. It's a win-win. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash left. Thanks for your help. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Australians for Coal, The Real News Network, This Is Hell Radio, The Young Turks, a TED Talk by Michael Metcalf, and Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff. As a company, we have an absolute commitment to the principle of action on climate change. We're very proud of our values. But as one of the major contributors to CO2 emissions, and as we begin to contend with the real-world effects of climate change, we have to prepare ourselves for the next step in addressing our corporate responsibilities in this area. While the steps on the surface seem to be in opposition to our self-interest, the reality is, however, that they are actually in opposition to our self-interest. So we recognise what we call the gap. The gap is the problem of simultaneously holding two contradictory positions. On one hand, to act on our responsibility to humanity, but on the other hand, to deliver on our commitment to superior value for our shareholders. We needed to take a leap of faith. An intuitive step outside of the limitations of science-based argument. I am proud to announce the company's new policy of fuck you. Fuck you is more than a policy. It's a philosophy where we're able to straddle the dichotomy between what we know is true and how we can benefit by ignoring that truth. Fuck you means we can be passionate about our values, but not act on them. Fuck you takes what would be our present-day financial burden away from us and transforms it into a chronic, economic, social, cultural and political crisis for future generations. The genius of this, however, is that we transferred it away from us. It ensures solid returns to our shareholders by killing their grandchildren. With this policy, we delay action and leverage the gap and are able to maintain our role as a global leader in destroying the planet. Ultimately, this is a reflection of the values of our shareholders. Everyday Australians have chosen to invest $20 billion into the company, but we prefer to think of it as 20 billion fuck yous to the Australians of tomorrow. There will come a day when my moral choices will no longer be beholden to the shareholders, and a wave of profound regret and a sorrow will engulf me. 
as I uh, realised with painful clarity the enormity of the damage I have perpetrated upon humanity. And even if I plead with whoever has succeeded my role in the company to stop putting CO2 in the air for the sake of my daughter's grandchildren, he or she can turn to me and simply respond with, fuck you. And that legacy really does make me very proud. Within minutes of Donald Trump's inauguration as the 45th president of the United States, all mention of the term climate change was scrubbed from the WhiteHouse.gov website. President Obama's clean power plan, one of the cornerstones of the American submission to the Paris Agreement, has been replaced with Trump's new America First energy plan, which states, quote, for too long, we have been held back by burdensome regulations on our energy industry. President Trump is committed to eliminating harmful and unnecessary policies such as the climate action plan and the waters of the U.S. rule, end quote. With emphasis on removing regulations for coal production and fracking for oil and gas, the new fossil fuel-based federal energy plan, according to the White House, quote, will greatly help the American workers by increasing wages by more than $30 billion over the next seven years, end quote. A figure, if correct, would mean less than $20 per American per year. But the basis of this wage gain number comes from a study titled The Economic Effects of Immediately Opening Federal Lands to Oil, Gas, and Coal Leasing, written by Dr. Joseph Mason, who is a professor at Louisiana State University, which was commissioned by the oil bill Billionaire Charles Koch connected Institute for Energy Research and with us to discuss the study and President Trump's new America first energy plan. Uh, we're joined with Kenneth Gillingham. He is an assistant professor of economics at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies with research focusing on energy economics and policy. In 2015 to 2016, he served as the senior economist for energy and the environment at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Kenneth, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, so, Kenneth, let's discuss the study, the economic effects of immediately opening federal lands to oil, gas and coal leasing, which the White House is citing um, on their website. They are linking environmental deregulation to wage increase. So, Kenneth, is that case clearly being made in the study? Well, I think even before you get to whether the case is being made, I think it's important to recognize that the, the study is being misquoted. That is the source for the $30 billion. But the study is not actually about the waters of the U.S. or the Climate Action Plan. The study is actually about opening up all federal lands to leasing for fossil fuel extraction. So to, to begin with, it's not even about the, what it says it's about on the White House website. So talk about the other issues with the study, Kenneth, um, which is specifically about deregulating, drilling, fracking and mining on public land. So let's look at some of the key findings. So the GDP, the gross domestic product, would increase by $127 billion annually in the next seven years, uh, a nearly $21 trillion cumulative increase in economic activity over the next 37 years. 552,000 jobs would be created annually over the next 
seven years, 32 billion increase in annual wages over the next seven years. In your opinion, do these figures even add up? Well, boy, those figures look good on the surface, don't they? So we have to look to see what the study's actually doing. The short answer is no, the figures don't add up. The study is missing, is, is problematic from start to finish. It's missing some major, major issues or has some major, major issues and missing some, uh, some very, very important caveats. Um, I can uh, get into a list of a few of these, these caveats, but the, the big picture to, to begin with is that the, the study has very, very serious problems and is a gross overestimate of what you might expect to happen. So is the new administration, the new Trump administration, their America First energy plan is replacing the former administration's clean power plan with the justification that the new plan will, quote, stimulate our economy. So is the question is, was the clean power plan a limit to economic growth, in your opinion? So the clean power plan would have done many great things. It would have reduced pollution, which would have meant fewer cases of asthma, which would actually, studies have shown, that increases productivity. It would have cost something. Now, the benefits in the analysis that was done far, far exceed the costs. And many of those benefits are coming from human health impacts. So when we're looking at the economy holistically, it's pretty clear that the benefits of the Clean Power Plan far exceeded the costs. It was a great deal for the American people when you looked at it that way. It would not have been a major challenge on growth. So China has recently made announcements that not only will they be closing over 100 uh, coal power plants, but that they will be um, financing huge growth in the development of renewable energy. So is the U.S. going to be left behind on renewable energy, or are market forces in the U.S. still going to promote renewable energy growth? Well, I think it's, there's a real fear that we're going to be left behind, and that fear is, is justified. Uh, there's no question that market forces are going to continue uh, increasing the adoption of renewables in the U.S. Renewables are becoming cheap. In many cases, they are the cheapest uh, power that you can uh, implement if you're building new capacity. But China is building capacity, renewable capacity, at a much, much faster pace than we are. And they're investing very, very heavily in it, largely to improve their air quality. And... Because of this, this is a very serious worry that when you look at where the investment's going and where the new innovation is going to be happening, it's going to be shifting over to China. So President Trump has talked about bringing jobs back to the coal industry. Is that even possible, given the cost of coal versus the lower cost of solar, solar power and natural gas these days? Yes, I, the, it's incredibly unlikely. There's really not much he can do against very, very strong market forces. Natural gas is incredibly inexpensive, and the cost of renewables has been dropping incredibly rapidly, which basically means that when you're a, a utility thinking about what power to build, if you're building a new power plant, you're not going to be looking to coal. It just doesn't make sense from the, the pure economics. And then when you have one thing to note is that most coal power plants are, are actually quite old. And when you're looking to retire a plant, are you going to retrofit it and replace it, or are you going to put in something more economic? Generally, you put in the more economic thing, the more economic choice. So it's pretty hard to imagine a case where the trends that we're already seeing away from coal are going to stop.
Here to tell us what to expect on this burning planet for the next four years, writer Ashley Dawson posted the Verso, Verso Books blog post, Trump Eats the Planet. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ashley. Thanks so much, Chuck. Good to be with you. Ashley is professor of English at the City University of New York's Graduate Center and at the City University of New York's College of Stanton Island. You may remember Ashley being on This Is Hell earlier this year to discuss his phenomenal book, Extinction, A Radical History. You start, Donald Trump is a fitting problem of the Capitalocene, the age when capitalism's relentless drive to expand has generated massive carbon emissions, pushing planetary ecosystems into states of unpredictable turbulence, precipitating a mass extinction crisis of unprecedented ferocity. So at least we know you won't be pulling your punches in your piece. For those who may not have heard you uh, when you were on our show earlier this year, what is the mass extinction crisis that you see us facing, and how soon might that happen? Um, well, we're living through it right now. Actually, since I last spoke to you, um, the World Resource Institute issued an update to their Living Planet Index that was about a month ago, where they talked about about two-thirds of living species, that is, you know, animals and plants, going extinct uh, between the period 1950 and 2020. So we're in the middle of this mass extinction crisis, and human beings are largely responsible for that. Although, as I argue in my book on extinction, I think it's actually capitalism that's driving the uh, mass extinction crisis rather than human beings in general. But isn't it too late for the environment already to do anything about it? And if it is, how much worse can Trump really make the mass extinction crisis? Isn't that horse on fire and out of the barn a long time ago? Uh, well, no. I mean, this is a, a fight we all have to engage in in our various different ways. I mean, just to take one specific example, actually, uh, in Brazil, the rate of deforestation was really significantly diminished um, under Dilma Rousseff, the uh, previous president, who was essentially deposed in a right-wing coup. Um, and now the rate of habitat destruction in that really vital area of the planet is ticking up again. Um, and that's one thing I really want to kind of highlight is that Trump shouldn't be seen in isolation, that there's a whole sort of series of right-wing populist uh, counter-revolutions going on around the planet and that they all have a really worrying environmental aspect. How much is Trump's anti-environmentalist policies, how much are those policies uh, outliers of the Republican Party? Because I want to make sure that people understand that, that uh, I want, want to make sure that people understand if this is an aberration or if this is something systemic within the Republican Party. No, I think it's really something systemic. In fact, if you look at uh, all the appointees who he's been lining up in the week and a half or so since I wrote my uh, blog post for Verso. Um, you know, they just are such industry hacks and longtime Republican uh, tools that, you know, he's he's really putting in place a whole branch of the Republican Party, which is ideologically committed to climate denial and to furthering the interests of fossil capitalism. So uh, why do you believe hopes in the market correcting for green energy. Why do you believe those hopes are misguided? Why can't the market correct for consumer demand, assuming consumers demand being more green energy? And, and is the problem with the market not being able to correct itself because the consumers aren't demanding that green energy? 
Yeah, that's that's a complicated point. You know, um, just actually a day or two ago, there was a piece in the New York Times sort of saying, you know, that the market is driving things in the right way. Um, and we kind of continue to see this perspective. And there are lots of important uh, people with, with big voices, including former Vice President Al Gore, who talk in these kinds of terms. And there is some reality to that. You know, I mean, um, because of the boom um, in... Uh, fracking, right? Um, the the country is really awash in gas and uh, oil produced by fracking at the moment. And that surfeit of production is really responsible for making coal economically non-viable, right? So, I mean, it's definitely true that on a kind of economic basis, coal is not competitive at the moment. But um, what I try and do in the uh, piece that I posted on the Verso site is to say, um, first of all, the kind of assumption that there's some inherent direction is uh, to, that, that's market-led is misplaced because we need to think about the market in global terms, right? I mean, it's, it's a planet and a kind of planetary cl- uh, climate emergency that we're looking at. And if we think about what's happening on a planetary level rather than just within the United States, Coal production is is not diminishing at all. Um, in fact, it's up really, really massively. And you can think about, for instance, countries like India, where there's a real kind of perceived need to drive industrialization by uh, intense coal uh, production. And of course, even the Chinese now faced with a, a Trump administration are sort of saying, "Oh, right, well, you know, um, we're not going to keep going in a renewable direction, so we're going to." amp up our coal production again. So the, the point is that these things are not exclusively economic and that politics play a huge role in them. And, you know, while at the moment there's a kind of surfeit of uh, liquid natural gas in the United States that makes coal non-competitive, um, and consequently you can find people saying um, current energy sources are not that intensive, right, um, in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. We've been shifting to less intensive forms of energy. And it's kind of objectively true that natural gas is less intensive than um, coal. Nonetheless, we have we have a lot of production of that. Um, methane is being produced. And on a global level, coal production is up massively. So, you know, you just have to be very careful about this kind of narrative, which Al Gore and other ecological modernizers have that the market is going to uh, lead us in this wonderful direction, and that therefore we don't really need to worry about Trump. You know that the Trump and whatever his administration and all the um, flunkies of uh, the big oil um, corporations like Scott Pruitt, who he's nominated to be EPA administrator. And, you know we don't really need to worry about what any of them do because the underlying economic dynamics are. Uh, driving us in this wonderful direction. And that needs to be challenged. And we need to be really clear about how we need to fight back politically. You know, whenever I post something about climate change online, Ashley, you can count on somebody saying that the real problem is overpopulation. In your opinion, what do people miss in their understanding of the challenges that this planet faces when they think that the real problem is overpopulation, not climate change? Oh my goodness, overpopulation. <laughs> um, well, you know, there, there have been currents, uh, sort of Malthusian currents within the environmental movement in the past, but I think we really need to push back against that and see that, in fact, as 
part of precisely the kind of xenophobic, anti-immigrant, white supremacist, uh, racist movements that Trump, unfortunately, has really brought to prominence in national discourse and politics today. Um, you know, it's about the distribution of resources rather than about any kind of specific amount of people, right? You know, um, we live still on a planet that has many resources, and if we steward them and use them correctly, they could certainly support the number of people that we have. Um, but, uh, you know, if we allow capitalism, which is a system which is based on infinite expansion, to kind of run rampant, uh, then we're going to end up in serious uh, hot water. And that, of course, is precisely what tr the Trump administration is proposing to do. You know, his um, pledges um, are all to take out every possible stop and allow fossil capitalism to develop as much as possible. So in my piece, I really argue that we have to uh, keep fighting the kinds of fights that we saw unfolding uh, in recent months at Standing Rock and over the last week, actually. You know, the victory there has been so, so wonderful and so positive. It may be rolled back in a few months once Trump comes to office. But, you know, nonetheless, I think it's really important uh, politically and symbolically that people are standing up to fossil capitalism and fighting uh, against the creation of this infrastructure. And, you know, speaking of something like Standing Rock, you know, one of the things that Trump has talked about um, in his tweets and his his platform is that this is going to be about energy independence and creating many jobs for Americans. Well, first of all, it's not going to create a huge number of jobs, right? We're not getting back kind of deep pit coal mines that are going to employ hundreds of thousands of people in West Virginia. The technology has moved on and they're using mountaintop removal there. So it employs relatively um, few people. But the idea of energy independence, which Trump is touting as part of his kind of populist nationalism, is also a complete fiction. You know, a lot of the pipelines that are being constructed, um, uh, including the Dakota Access Pipeline, are to ship natural gas and frack crude out of the country, right? Because we have too much production of that stuff here. So, um, big corporations want to shift uh, shift the stuff and uh, transport it internationally and take it to places like Europe where it, uh, they can make four to six times as much money by selling it. So they're putting people in direct danger all over the place and doing it not in any way to uh, support energy independence, uh, as they call it, of this country. And one thing I've been thinking about just recently, I don't know if you've heard about this, Chuck, but there's this totally insane plan to build a pipeline um, right next to a nuclear power plant, one of the oldest nuclear power plants in the country, which is only 30 miles north of New York City. And they're going to put this pipeline within a couple of hundreds of feet of the nuclear power plant. And you couldn't think of a more insane plan if, if you tried. And that, uh, that pipeline isn't to help people in New York City. Um, you know, it's to ship the gas up to Canada and then ship it off to Europe. You know, I've been trying to figure out what explains climate change denialism. Do you think that Trump's climate change denialism allows him to give his supporters something other than bipartisan globalization to blame for their work and or their working and living conditions? How much do you think dismissing climate change alleviates any conversation or criticism of globalization, of continuing economic growth as a driving policy force? Um, I think that climate change denialism, I mean, I think Naomi, Naomi Klein really hits it 
um, you know, nails it when she says that this is about uh, having your pockets Aligned by the fossil fuel industry. The only thing I would add to that, you know, um, as I say in my my blog piece, it's not like Donald Trump is is stupid or bad at science. You know, he he's getting paid very handsomely, and uh, certainly if you look at pe- people like Scott Pruitt, um, you know, he has been deeply enmeshed in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, in 2014, a New York Times investigation, in fact, found that he was writing memorandums on letterhead that came directly from the fossil fuel industry. So they're basically just writing the legislation that he was trying to get passed in Oklahoma that was uh, you know, pushing off attempts to regulate oil and gas. The only thing I would um, add to you know, McLean's kind of analysis is just that a lot of that denialism, I think, picks up on the legacy of the Cold War, you know, and resonates with these fears, uh, which people sometimes have, of entities like the United Nations coming in and taking over and robbing us of democracy. Um, so, you know, given the way in which democracy has been hollowed out in this country and taken over, uh, you know, and uh, eviscerated, I can see why those kinds of fears are, are real and um, why these kinds of claims might res- resonate. But of course, they're totally misplaced. And the people who are really gutting democracy are the, precisely the folks who uh, uh, Trump is bringing to Washington, right? He promised to drain the swamp of Washington. It's such an ironic metaphor because, of course, his policies are going to massively exacerbate climate change, and including sea level rise. So he's, <laughs> he's actually bringing the swamp to D.C. in the most literal way, as well as, of course, metaphorically by bringing... Uh, fossil fuel corporations and allowing them to take over the government. Today's episode is sponsored by Wonder Capital, the Colorado-based investment company whose mission is to help kickstart the domestic solar industry by matching individual investors with solar projects in need of financing, letting you make money and fight climate change at the same time. The long-term cost savings of going solar are huge, but there's still the upfront installation costs that prevent some companies and organizations from taking the plunge, and regular banks don't know the first thing about the solar market or making loans for solar projects. That's where Wonder Capital comes in. There an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. to bridge that financing gap and earn up to an 8.5% return annually in the process. And don't worry, you don't have to be a solar expert. Wonder has done all the heavy lifting for you. Their investment funds are fully managed and already diversified. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. To get started, create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash left. That's wonder spelled with a U. Wondercapital.com slash left. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. While the birds are melting and the sea is rising, I don't know. Will we do whatever it takes to tackle climate change? I come at this question not as a green campaigner, 
In fact, I confess to being rather hopeless at recycling. I come at it as a professional observer of financial policy making and someone that wonders how history will judge us. One day, this ring that belonged to my grandfather will pass to my son, Charlie. And I wonder what his generation, and perhaps the one that follows, will make of the two lives this ring has worked. My grandfather was a coal miner. In his time, burning fossil fuels for energy and for allowing economies to develop was accepted. We know now that that is not the case because of the greenhouse gases that coal produces. But today, I fear it's the industry in which I work in that will be judged more harshly because of its impact on the climate. More harshly than my grandfather's industry, even. I work, of course, in the banking industry, which will be remembered for its crisis in 2008. A crisis that diverted the attention and finances of governments away from some really, really important promises. Like promises made at the Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009 to mobilize $100 billion a year to help developing countries move away from burning fossil fuels and transition to using cleaner energy. That promise is already in jeopardy. And that's a real problem, because that transition to cleaner energy needs to happen sooner rather than later. Firstly, because greenhouse gases once released stay in the atmosphere for decades. And secondly, if a developing economy builds its power grid around fossil fuels today, it's going to be way more costly to change later on. So for the climate, history may judge that the banking crisis happened at just the wrong time. The story need not be this gloomy, though. Three years ago, I argued that governments could use the tools deployed to save the financial system to meet other global challenges. And these arguments are getting stronger, not weaker, with time. Let's take a brief reminder of what those tools look like. When the financial crisis hit in 2008, the central banks of the US and UK began buying bonds issued by their own governments in a policy known as quantitative easing. Depending on what happens to those bonds when they mature, this is money printing by another name. And boy, did they print. The US alone created $4 trillion worth of its own currency. This was not done in isolation. In a remarkable act of cooperation, the 188 countries that make up the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, agreed to issue $250 billion worth of their own currency, the special drawing right, to boost reserves around the world. When the financial crisis moved to Europe, the European Central Bank President, Mario Draghi, promised to do whatever it takes. And they did. The Bank of Japan repeated those words, that exact same commitment, to do whatever it takes to reflate their economy. In both cases, whatever it takes meant trillions of dollars more in money printing policies that continue today. 
What this shows is that when faced with some global challenges, policymakers are able to act collectively with urgency and run the risks of unconventional policies like money printing. So let's go back to that original question. Can we print money for climate finance? So three years ago, the idea of using money in this way was something of a taboo. Once you break down and dismantle the idea that money is a finite resource, governments can quickly get overwhelmed by demands from their people to print more and more money for other causes, education, healthcare, welfare, even defense. And there are some truly terrible historical examples of money printing, uncontrolled money printing, leading to hyperinflation. Think Weimar Republic in 1930, Zimbabwe more recently in 2008, when the prices of basic goods like bread are doubling every day. But, 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 not every money printing policy is the same. Each day, there is stronger and stronger counterpoint examples to those bad outcomes. Namely, that central banks printing money but operating within their mandated rules, policy can work. Six years on since the financial crisis, inflation in those countries that did the printing, it isn't just absent, it's lacking. And the fact that a conservative institution like the European Central Bank, which was originally skeptical of the policy, has actually begun to implement it this year, in 2015, shows the policy's growing acceptance. All of this is moving the public debate forward. So much so that money printing for the people is now discussed openly in the financial media and even in some political manifestos. But it's important the debate doesn't stop here with printing national currencies. Because climate change is a shared global problem, there are some really compelling reasons why we should be printing that international currency that's issued by the IMF to fund it. The Special Drawing Right, or SDR, is the IMF's electronic unit of account that governments use to transfer funds amongst each other. Think of it as a peer-to-peer -peer payment network, like Bitcoin, but for governments. And it's truly global. Each of the 188 members of the IMF hold SDR quotas as part of their foreign exchange reserves. These are national stores of wealth that countries keep to protect themselves against currency crises. And that global nature is why, at the height of the financial crisis in 2009, the IMF issued those extra $250 billion because it served as a collective global action that safeguarded countries large and small in one fell swoop. But here, here's the intriguing part. More than half of those extra SDRs that were printed in 2009, $150 billion worth, went to developed market countries. 
who, for the most part, have a modest need for these foreign exchange reserves because they have flexible exchange rates. So those extra reserves that were printed in 2009, in the end, for developed market countries at least, weren't really needed, and they remain unused today. So here's an idea. As a first step, why don't we start spending those unused, those extra SDRs that were printed in 2009 to combat climate change? They could, for example, be used to buy bonds issued by the UN's Green Climate Fund. This was a fund designed to channel funds towards developing countries to meet their climate projects. It's been one of the most successful funds of its type, raising almost $10 billion. But if we use those extra SDRs that were issued, it helps governments get back on track to meet that promise of $100 billion a year that was derailed by the financial crisis. It could also, could also serve as a test case. If the inflationary consequences of using SDRs in this way are benign, it could be used to justify the additional extra issuance of SDRs, say, every five years. Again, with the commitment that developed market countries would direct their share of the new reserves to the Green Climate Fund. Printing an international money in this way has several advantages over printing national currencies. The first is it's really easy to argue that spending money to mitigate climate change benefits everyone. No one section of society benefits from the printing press over another. That problem of competing claims is mitigated. It's also fair to say that because it takes so many countries to agree to issue these extra SDRs, it's highly unlikely that money printing would get out of control. What you end up with is a collective global action aimed, and it's a controlled global action, aimed at a global good. And as we've learned with the money printing schemes, whatever concerns we have can be allayed by rules. So, for example, the issuance of these extra SDRs every five years could be capped such that this international currency is never more than 5% of global foreign exchange reserves. That's important because it would relay, let's say, that ridiculous concerns that the US might have that the SDR could ever challenge the dollar's dominant role in the international finance. <laughs> and in fact, I think the only thing that the SDR would likely steal from the dollar under this scheme is its nickname the greenback, because even with that cap in place, the IMF could have followed up its issuance, its massive issuance of SDRs in 2009, with a further $200 billion of SDRs in 2014. So, hypothetically, that would mean that developed countries could have contributed up to $300 billion worth of SDRs to the Green Climate Fund. That's 30 times what it has today. And you know what? As spectacular as that sounds, it's only just beginning to look like whatever it takes. And just to think what amazing things could be done with that money, consider this. In 2009, Norway promised 
$1 billion of its reserves to Brazil if they followed through on their goals on deforestation. That program has since delivered a 70% reduction in deforestation in the past decade. That's saving 3.2 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions, which is the equivalent of taking all American cars off the roads for three whole years. So what could we do with 300 other pay-for-performance climate projects like that, organized on a global scale? We could take cars off the roads for a generation. So let's not quibble about whether we can afford to fund climate change. The real question is, do we care enough about future generations to take the very same policy risks we took to save the financial system? After all, we could do it. We did do it, and we are doing it today. We must, must, must do whatever it takes. Takes to turn this around. I know what's at stake. I know that I've let you down. And if you give me a chance, believe that I can change. I'll keep us together, whatever it takes. Germany is one of the largest energy consumers in the world. Germans have the fourth largest economy in the world. They're essentially the economic engine powering the European Union and on one particularly sunny and windy Sunday in May, the Germans hit a new high in renewable energy generation. At around 2 p.m., the country's solar, wind, hydro and biomass plants were supplying 87% of German energy being consumed, which led to power prices dipping into the negative and for a few hours, customers were actually being paid to consume electricity. But how is all of this possible? Isn't renewable energy only an unrealistic dream of jobless, smelly hippies? At least that's what Exxon keeps telling us, right? Well, for starters, Germany has more than 23,000 wind turbines and more than 1.4 million solar photovoltaic systems distributed all over the country. This is the result of an ongoing restructuring under the German government's energy transition program, Energy Wende. Since 2011, the German government has reoriented policy from a centralized energy generation model to a distributed generation model where citizens play a larger role in energy generation. The overall objective is to increase efficiencies while saving energy. And the results have been fantastic so far, with renewable energy sources overtaking coal in 2014 and the country well on its way towards a goal of achieving 100% renewable energy by the year 2050. And this is feasible elsewhere as well. According to a comprehensive study by the Department of Energy, with currently available technologies, the U.S. could also achieve a target close to Germany's by 2050. Well, the only thing in the way is, though, uh, well, it's, it's money. It's money. It's always money. Where's the money, Lebowski? Now, why is money an obstacle? Well, because, as one example, according to the Environmental Defense Fund, in 2013, fossil fuels received 75 times more subsidies than clean energy did. Plus, in the past couple of years, the bargain basement price of oil, combined with the low cost of generating fossil fuels, has an impact on green energy's ability to compete in the open market. 
But the biggest hurdle to overcome is still the fossil fuel industry's vested interest in preserving the status quo and keeping us dependent on oil, coal, and gas. Now we've come a long way since 2008 when renewables were easily dismissed as costly and unscalable. But now, as of 2015, several cities around the world have achieved 100% renewable power. Costa Rica ran on only renewable energy for 75 days straight after a long period of heavy rainfall. But Costa Rica is a fraction of the U.S. Uh, in both landmass and population, you might say. But that's why detailing Germany's efforts is so important. Because Germany is huge, both in land and also population. So if you don't care about the environment, well, maybe I can appeal to your patriotic side. We've beaten the Germans twice before, and we can beat them again in renewable energy. But to achieve this ambitious goal, it'll take the same level of across-the-board commitment from every sector of American society that it took to win World War II, and the stakes, the very survival of the human species, those are the stakes that we're working with, are every bit as high. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. If they don't service your area now... They have plans to come your way soon, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, divest yourself and your community from fossil fuels. Just a few days ago, North Dakota's governor forced the water protectors to leave their camp at Standing Rock. 46 protectors remained peacefully and were arrested peacefully, while more than 200 police officers showed up. Then the camp was demolished. While it's heartbreaking to see the physical end of this inspiring stronghold, the no-dapple battle is also being fought beyond the camp nationwide in the form of a divestment movement. There are two components to the movement. One, divest your personal finances from the institution's bankrolling dapple, and two, divest your community from those banks. The website defunddapl.org has four-step action plans and the resources you need to do both under the defund tab on their site. To divest your personal finances, defunddapple.org offers a list of the bank's funding dapple, a sample strongly worded letter to send to your bank when you leave them, as well as links to lists of alternative banks and credit unions to join, get credit cards from, and invest with that are not funding dapple and support environmental and other progressive values. They also provide suggested social media posts to announce your divestment, tag your bank, and use the hashtag defunddapple to encourage others to divest too. When you've divested your own finances, be sure to return to defunddapple.org and add your divestment amount to their divestment counter. The next step, of course, is to divest your community. You've probably heard about the success of the Dapple divestment movement in cities like Seattle, Washington, and Davis, California. Those efforts were led by small groups of Native American activists and local organizations. 
organizations. Your city or town could be next, but you need to get engaged and start the action. DefundDapple.org provides information on how to find out if your communities are invested in the bank's funding Dapple, suggested ways to connect to local groups to ally with and form a collective to take action, examples of ordinances and how to find sponsors, and tips and resources on organizing grassroots support. It's important to note that Dapple is one front in a larger movement against fossil fuels, especially now that the Keystone XL pipeline has been resurrected, Scott Pruitt is at the helm of the EPA, and Trump is rolling back Obama's climate rules, like the one stopping coal companies from dumping waste in our waterways. Divestment is the climate movement's most effective tool in a crony capitalist, Wall Street-owned society, and we should wield it whenever possible. But we also need to get in the streets. So, save the date for April 29th for the second People Climate March, this time in Washington, D.C., with sister marches across the country. Go to peoplesclimate.org to learn more. Again, we want to ask that you help us in our work to amplify the most effective activism. If you've come across an action or new organization that is doing great work getting people engaged to resist the Trump agenda, please share it with us by emailing amanda at bestofleft.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if pulling the rug out from under an industry that is destroying our planet is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about divesting yourself and your community from fossil fuels via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. As Desmond Tutu once said, quote, people of conscience need to break their ties with corporations financing the injustice of climate change, unquote. So be a person of conscience. Divest. The new Trump administration seems to be moving towards giving support to coal as an industry in the United States. Of course, supporting the coal companies, making them more profitable than they have been in the past, cannot be explained in those terms, because then it looks like what it is. So instead, great breast-beating is happening about helping coal workers, coal miners. And they indeed have gotten the short end of the stick for many, many decades and deserve support. But of course, as any thinking person would understand, Supporting the coal miners is different from supporting the coal mining companies. What coal miners need is a healthy alternative, a good job, a decent income that would be less threatening to their health and welfare. And that could be provided by local, state, or federal authorities if there were really the commitment to do that. It is not necessary to support the coal company with profits in order to help the coal miner. But that's a detail I won't go into at this moment. What I want to do is deal with one of the arguments made about why we should continue 
to rely on coal, particularly for generating electricity. And I should remind everyone that about 40% of the world's electricity is produced by burning coal. The problem with burning coal is that it is very bad for the atmosphere, for the air, for our lungs, for our health, for global warming, you name it, bad news. We can and should switch to other forms of energy generation that do not have these bad consequences. That would employ people. That's really not a problem. The solar energy industry in the United States today, which only accounts for 1% of all electricity, already employs more people than the coal business in the United States does. So if you were actually concerned about jobs, you would move more into solar energy, for example, than you do now, because it would provide more jobs there than would be lost if solar replaced coal. And the same is true for wind and energy and so on in terms of jobs. But the real reason, again, is health. The health of the planet, the health of the people who live on it. Well, the argument is made, coal is profitable. And therefore, it should be supported because it's profit. The argument here seems to be, for those who do the logic, that profit is to be taken as a sign that something should be done. In other words, if something's profitable, well, then it justifies its existence. If something is more profitable than something else, you should do the more profitable business because somehow higher profit is taken to mean that something is more socially valued, more socially useful, etc., And it is that argument I want to confront and to refute. And the way to do that is really simple, and I'm going to use coal as an example. How do you calculate the profit of the coal business? In the same way that you do any other business. You look at the revenues, what's earned when you sell coal, and you subtract the costs of getting the coal out of the ground, of processing it to whatever degree you have to, and shipping it to the customer. You subtract the costs, the ones I mentioned, from the revenue, and you get the profit. And that allows you to calculate what your rate of profit is. What's wrong with this calculation? Well, the answer is really quite simple. In a capitalist system, you are not required to count the actual costs of doing something like mining coal. You're only required to count the costs you actually have to pay for as the coal company. Very simple example. If mining coal in a community cuts short the average lifespan of an adult coal miner, say by four years, compared to people who do other kinds of work, You might, as a society, say, well, that's an enormous cost, the cost of a shortened life. Those extra four years could have brought all kinds of pleasure to that 
person, had he or she lived, to their families who needed them. They might have earned all kinds of income in that period. All of that was lost. All of that is a cost. But it is not a cost in our capitalist system that the coal company has to cover. And so the coal company doesn't count it as a cost. Well, here's the punchline. If you added to coal company costs the real costs that are a burden to the real people who do the coal mining, who breathe the air that results from coal mining, who suffer the climatic damage that flows from coal mining, if the coal companies had to count those costs, it would have eaten up all of their profits. Then they would have to admit that the coal business, if you actually count all of its costs, is a losing proposition. Please keep that in mind. The next time anyone tells you that because any industry, coal or anything else, is profitable, that that should be taken as proof or evidence that it's a worthwhile activity, that it is something society wants or needs or benefits from. The real question you always should ask, what costs were counted? And what costs were not counted? Because the not counted could change the conclusion 100%. We just heard clips today starting with Australians for Coal and their Fuck You initiative. The Real News Network discussed the declining cost of renewables. This Is Hell Radio spoke with Ashley Dawson about the fight against fossil capitalism. The Young Turks highlighted the case of Germany that is proving a shift to solar energy is possible. Michael Metcalf spoke in his TED Talk about a way to finance the fight against climate change. Our activism for today is to divest yourself and your community from the Dakota Access Pipeline and all other fossil fuel projects being supported by banks around the world. And Professor Richard Wolff on Economic Update made the simple yet profound point that not everything that's profitable is good. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. My name is Kiki. I'm calling from Oakland. First time caller, actually. So a couple episodes ago, you talked about how it's best to preface conversations with Trump supporters by saying that his policies are the wrong answers to a lot of the, the, the right questions. So one of those questions that I've had in my mind for quite a while is, uh, what do we do about immigration as progressives? I know that there has always been that pathway to legalization stance. I don't know what it is, to be honest. Is it something that will only apply to the 11 million undocumented that are here now? Or are we looking to have a law that will allow anyone in the future that meet a certain criteria to go from being an undocumented migrant to having good legal standing in the U.S., which essentially is like an, an open border of sorts 
just walk in if you can and, and we'll sort you out. We'll make sure you're, you're whole and you can work and contribute to society a lot more than you, you would if you were undocumented. Something like that I personally am okay with. Let's try it out. The alternative hasn't been great. I can already think of a dozen reasons why that's probably not the best answer, but um, I'm cool to try it out. But I think a big problem is our progressive leaders haven't given us a true answer to the problem of immigration. You know, that would help, I think, a lot. You know, we are compassionate. I definitely do not want to deport 11 million uh, people from this country, you know, rape them away from their homes that they've known all their lives. That's that's cruel and it's really unfeasible, it's ludicrous. But what is the answer to this problem? And perhaps progressives don't see this as a problem. There are the statistics that say that immigration is what, like net zero at the moment? Does that mean 11 million is our threshold? Is it 15? Is it 50? You know, uh, when if net, as long as net immigration is zero, we don't care how many people are in this country. I don't know. I don't know. But I think a problem is I don't have a clear answer to give to my conservative brothers and sisters if they were to ask. So I, I guess I'm posing this question to uh, best of left listeners. If anyone does have the answer to this or I've or have heard it when I haven't because you know I don't listen to everything uh, please share I like to know so I can be armed on this and perhaps this is a discussion that needs to be had that we are aren't having as fairly and as openly as we should Trump has his answer which is just fucking dumb but it is an answer nonetheless what's ours that's it Thanks, Jay, for all you're doing. It's an awesome show. I'll keep on contributing as a member as much as I can for as long as I can. Take care, man. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Rachel from Washington State. I'm calling to respond to Amanda from Washington State. Hi, Jay. This is Amanda from Snohomish, Washington. I called to ask about how to handle the fear and lack of hope she feels, in particular in response to threats of violence coming from rhetoric on the right, some instances of direct physical violence, and of course, the harmful policies coming out of the administration right now. I would really like to hear any commentary you might have or any suggestions from your other listeners. Thanks for listening. So first, I'll talk about me. To a small degree, I feel better by reminding myself that the threats of violence are not the same thing as actual violence. I also worry about violence at a protest, but in fact, recent protests have mostly been incredibly peaceful. To a small degree, I feel better by educating myself. I went to a nonviolent direct action training partly because it helped me understand when a police officer is more likely to consider arrest. To a small degree, I feel better by looking outside and reminding myself that the houses are still standing, the neighborhood I live in is still essentially the same as it was last month and two years ago with kids playing in the street. But above all, the thing that brings me hope is working with other people on the resistance, going to -to face-to-face meetings of people organizing actions. That might be Invisible, which there is a Snohomish group where Amanda was from, or anything else like that. So that's me. I also asked this question of a lot of friends and acquaintances, and they named an interesting variety of things. The most common answers were other people that they love, also acts of kindness, 
nature, and art and literature. So I think I'd summarize that to say, to find the things that give you a glimmer of hope and hold on to them. Hold them up to remind yourself when you get scared or lose hope and maybe help out with the resistance. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to follow up on the message we just heard from Rachel, going back to the original message from Amanda in the previous episode, a little background... Whenever there's a message that comes in, someone asking for advice or input or commentary, and I don't feel like I have a great answer for them, my standard strategy is to play the message and then maybe not respond to it at all in the hopes that someone else will. And that's what happened this time. Bang, I get a call from Rachel, the system works, it's beautiful. But it turns out I actually do have some comments uh, to add to this because it's true, when I heard Amanda's message the first time, I thought, oh boy, that's a tough one. I'm not sure I have any really great, insightful advice to impart. But the day after that episode posted, I realized I know someone who does. This is an email that I received just a couple of weeks ago, so it wasn't in response to Amanda, but it may very well could have been. And so I'm going to read this email almost in its entirety, and I hope that Amanda and Rachel and everyone else listening takes some uh, comfort and inspiration from it. So this person writes in, I am an atheist Afro-Latina immigrant from Venezuela, mother to a bad hombre, mother to a pro-choice woman, and mother to queer children. I do not cover all the marginalized communities, but my family and I cover a lot of them together. And this email was in response to the Women's March episode, and so at this point in the message, she gives advice about how we all need to come together, stop infighting, and uh, fight Trump, and then she continues. The thing about suffering is that it brings out a keen level of consciousness in people. It connects you to so many people because it is in the suffering that we find communion. It's where we realize that we are not that different from one another. When a group of people live with sufferings for generations, it creates this ability to exist and survive with very little in a state of mind that requires great strength to deal with the monotony of the typical day-to-day. There's this chemical response to this constant level of suffering that allows for it to become familiar and almost become part of those who grow with it. It becomes less of a suffering, and in reality, it turns into a type of callous that ironically protects the spirit and souls of those who live with it, because it makes them resilient enough to endure it or any other that may cross their path. Suffering becomes ingenuity and fuel." 
We are in a country that sadly has opposed equality over and over again to many people. Some people actually belong to several marginalized groups that are constantly denied equality in various levels and regardless of how much suffering they are afflicted with. They will sooner or later win every battle and roadblock placed in front of them because they can persevere more than those who have never felt suffering to this grand of scale. And once the groups decide to come together as one, nothing will stop them. There is strength in numbers. So I evidently couldn't have said it better myself. I'm very glad uh, that the letter writer wrote in, and I just want to reiterate that she was speaking both of individual oppressions and recognizing those and the need and the case for unity. And that is certainly the mentality that I hope that we can go forward with, recognizing the individual circumstances and oppressions that different people will have, that they will be uh, differently and uh, negatively and adversely affected under the Trump administration, uh, some far more than others, but at the same time recognizing that we really are on the same spectrum somewhere. No one is truly safe under the Trump administration, not even straight white guys. So I do hope that unity emerges as the letter writer urges and as uh, somewhat appears to be happening, and that we can do that And on an individual level, I hope we can all take heed to one degree or another from the advice uh, in the letter about turning our either oppression or just frustration or anger uh, over the Trump administration and turn it not into despondency or despair, but into ingenuity and fuel. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained